us worship, let us bow down, let us kneel before the Lord our God, our Maker. Lord, many of us have the experience and the testimony. We could tell really great, amazing, moving stories about meeting our spouse, feeling amazing love, getting married. That love goes deeper and deeper. But because we're imperfect, we offend and the love is tested and strained. We repent. And we remember why we got married in the first place and who that person is to us. And our love goes deeper and deeper still. And then it gets strained. And then it gets deeper still. God, would you help us to know you more, to understand you more, your ways, your wisdom, your faithfulness, your promises, that we would quit murmuring about how we don't always like your ways and they're too harsh and they're too cruel and they're too incomprehensible to us and we would love you more. And that love and that trust would go deeper still. And we would love you more. Would you deliver us from deceiving ourselves about just how much we love you? Because we can say we love you. We can tell others we love you. And yet in those moments of confusion and feeling like we've been abandoned, that you've let us go through too much too long, us to remember that your ways are higher than our ways and your ways are always driven by your great love for us. And we would trust your ways, we would trust your methods, and we would trust your timing. And our love would deepen still deeper, more and more. Help us to know there's always more room, more depth, more expression, more dimension of your love for us and our capacity to love you even more. That we've never exhausted and only when we're with you face to face will we be in a full expression of understanding, receiving love and giving love. God, help us to in life to love you more, to display your love more, and help us to know that one day we will know this love in a circular kind of way. Receiving and giving. Giving and receiving. Love with you, for you, from you, back to you. And so we will be with you for eternity in this cyclical love that you've bestowed upon us. Oh, what kind of love is this, God, that we should be called your sons and your daughters? God, thank you for loving like this and help us to acknowledge openly that we love you only because you first loved us. God, thank you.
thank you. May our lives be a thank you every day of our existence. Speak to us now, please, about your love, your guidance, and the way you give us these ceremonial instructions to do this and not to do that, to be reminded of your love for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So we're taking the weeks between, we started last week, new series, the weeks between last week taking us right to Thanksgiving with a review of some really church Bible basics. And we began last week with what it means to be born again. What is this word salvation? And how, in fact, does it work in us, for us, on us? What does it mean to be saved? What happens when you're born again? We dealt with all of that. I'm not sure I answered all your questions, but that was the focus. We saw very broad, uh, very broad use of, of various words and phrases. We are covered by His grace. We, we, our sins are washed away. We are redeemed that we're bought out of our slavery to sin. Uh, those were perhaps the biggest three. And scores of other illustrations and language used to speak to us about He's rescuing us. He's pulling us out of one environment spiritually or even geographically into another place, into His presence. All of this is salvation. All of this is redemption. This is what happens when we're born of His Spirit. Okay, so after salvation, after being born in the Spirit, born again, John chapter 3, an encounter with Nicodemus. Now what? What's, what's next? So we've come this morning to the issue of baptism. And we'll look at this great ceremony. I, I, I'm using that word intentionally as opposed to a, an act of grace. Grace is the means by which God redeems, saves, forgives us. And then there are expressions of our our embracing that grace, our responding to that grace, to our believing His promises. Our response in belief is not the same thing as a means of. A means of in the sense that, oh, I better understand grace, I comprehend grace, but, but not in the sense that doing this purchases in some way grace for me. My dad used to tell me this story about all kinds of things, but, but I remember this story well. He came home from the war, 45, he probably got home in 45, 1945, and in their small little community, there was this other soldier who met a girl locally, and he had met my mother, and they wanted to get married, and his friend had met this girl, and he wanted to get married, and so he's talking to her and eventually talks to the parents and the parents ask some questions and he got, they got the wrong answers and the girl's eyes are opened and all of a sudden, no, no, I, I'm, I can't marry, I don't want to marry you. And he's persistent and he woos her and uh, 
gets her to pull away from her parents, and he goes to a just a, a knucklehead friend. This is a true story. Goes to some crazy friend, and and says, "Why don't you pose as a preacher, and I'll get this girl, and you do a little ceremony, and she'll think we got married." So his friend says, "I'll do anything for twenty dollars." And sure enough, he says, I do, and she says, I do, and they get married, and it was months later she finds out this whole thing is a ruse, and what? Putting a ring on doesn't make you married. It's a sign of being married, but you can get the sign at any jewelry store. You can get the sign not being married. Or it works the opposite. You can take it off and go to the bar and visit with all the girls, and if they don't see the tan line, they're not married. Signs are just that. They're signs. They represent the real deal. You, you, you get the image now. So baptism is not the means of our redemption. It's a sign of being redeemed. And on and on and on. So it's 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 the distinction between what really happened and the reminder, the declaration, the sign of what really happened. And we're getting this morning to the sign, not the event itself. Last week is that's the work of grace. That's that's redemption. That's the washing away of our sins. Baptism is a sign of that. Okay, enough. Let's let's get to it. Matthew chapter 3 is where we begin this morning. Matthew chapter 3, and we start in verse 11. I baptize you with water. This is John the Baptist, John the Baptizer, who, by the way, is a cousin to Jesus. But he's making this explanation. I baptize you with water for or because of repentance. You have repented. You've turned away from trusting yourself. You've turned to trusting Jesus. And for that reason, because of repentance, I baptize you with water because of, for your repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I'm not even worthy to carry. He, Jesus, will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. I'm baptizing, I'm baptizing you in water as a picture that you have repented. Jesus is coming, and he will immerse you. He will submerge you. He will encapsulate you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. It's not a literal fire, but you will be <laughs> fired up with the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit. His winnowing fork is in his hand, that is to say, he knows what he's doing, and he's gathering, he's gathering like a, a pitchfork, he's gathering huge amounts of wheat. His winning fork is his hand. He will clear the threshing floor and gather his wheat, gather people, a bunch of people, into his barn. But the chaff, no, not the chaff, not the make-believers, only true believers. They, the chaff, will be burned with unquenchable fire. Jesus came from Galilee to Jordan to John to be baptized by John the Baptist. John the Baptist is speaking in verse 11. But verse 14, we get to the act where Jesus actually comes to John and says in verse 14 
uh, it says in verse 13, but John says in verse 14, wait a second, wait a second. This is, uh, I don't understand this, Jesus. You're the Messiah. I'm just the messenger. I need to be baptized by you. And, and you come to me. Jesus answered, let it be so now. In this moment right now, we need to do this, John, because I'm making a visual statement. I'm putting the wedding ring on. Jesus answered, let it be so. It is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. God is the Father has commanded me to do it this way, to make this declaration of this image, this symbol, this, this, this lived out illustration of what baptism is. And with that explanation, John the baptizer says, okay, verse 16, but Jesus was baptized. And immediately he came up out of the water, or he went up from the water. You can't come up from something unless you were in it. He went up out of or from the water. Behold, the heavens were open. He saw the Spirit of God. This is a beautiful picture. The Trinity is in one place at the same time. He saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove. Behold, the voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son. And of course, Jesus is there. The Son is in the flesh. The Spirit shows like a dove. We hear the voice of God from heaven. Here's the ultimate endorsement of baptism. Here's the ultimate declaration of so this is not just some human, no, no, this is precedented by the Trinity itself. Skip to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2 is the day of Pentecost. So this is what we just read, Matthew chapter 3. This is early on in the three and a half year of public ministry of Jesus. Early on. We're jumping ahead, the whole Gospels are, are, are completed. We're in the early chapters of chapter 2 or 3 of the book of Acts, chapter 2. And so Jesus has been crucified. He's ascended back to the Father. And the apostles are now are beginning to take the gospel around the globe. The day of Pentecost occurred, the Holy Spirit come. Remember the promise was, Jesus will baptize you with the Spirit. It's happening in Acts chapter 2. And as a fallout... That spirit baptism on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, this language is found in verse 37. When they heard Peter preaching, when they heard Peter preaching and they saw the miracle of why are these people speaking in languages they've never studied so that the gospel could go to all the nations. When they saw what they saw and heard what they heard, they were cut to the heart. Peter had been preaching for four or five hours. 20 minutes, I, I have no idea. When all that happened, they were cut to the heart. Oh my goodness, this is real. Something big is going on here. Peter, and, and someone said, someone just imagine this. You're sitting in a, in, in a it's not a scheduled worship service. The day of Pentecost was, well, it's, it's a big Jewish celebration. Passover is when Jesus was crucified. Harvest is, is, is what they were celebrating on the day of Pentecost. And then all this happened. As Peter's preaching, someone says, Hey, so what are we supposed to do? 
all that you're saying, all that we've just seen, what are we supposed to do? Peter said, repent. That's the precedent. That's the priority, the, the order of these events. Repent, turn from your sin, turn from running your own life, turn from trusting yourself to work your way into heaven, and turn to Jesus. Repent simply means I'm changing direction. I used to be going this way. Now I'm going this way. I used to run my life. Now Christ is running my life. Repent. Change direction. Change course. Change priority. Change ownership. Christ is the Lord of my life. That's salvation. That's being born of the Spirit. And be baptized. Repent and be baptized. Every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Because of the forgiveness of your sins. Because of the word for. Because of the forgiveness of your sins. And then you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Then the presence of Christ will come. You'll receive this, this powerful presence. The living God in the person of the Spirit of Christ will come. This promise, I love verse 39. This is how preachers catch themselves talking and say, well, that's not it. No. This promise is to you. Well, but it's not just for you. It's for your children. And it's not just for the next generation. It's, it's for all those who are far off. In fact, you know what? It's for everyone whom the Lord calls. Look, look how he keeps, no, that's not big enough, that's not big enough. It's for you, it's for your children, it's for people far away, it's for whoever. God shall call. It's for whomever. And with many other words, he bore witness to the day's events. Because they're asking, what's all this going on? What are we supposed to do in light of what we're hearing and seeing? He bore witness with many other words and encouraged them, exhorted them, saying, save yourselves from this crooked life. That's in the first century. 21st century. And now more than ever, we need to be saying, save yourself from this crooked generation. So those who received, who embraced, this is truth. What that apostle just said to us, what we just saw with our eyes and explained what we this is true. Those who received his word got baptized. Now here's a little phrase that we'll get to in just a moment. And there were added that day about 3,000. That's a pretty good worship service. There were added that day. Added to what? Well, I'm glad you asked that. In your printed notes, you'll see that I've got there a phrase about church membership. And you're thinking, so this is supposed to be about baptism today, you said. Why don't you talk to us about church membership? Because I don't think you can separate the two. So I've got a bunch of verses here, not because I'm going to just hammer you with, with, I just want you to catch the language of Scripture. So stay with me and... I hope you'll see that I'm not trying to manipulate, manipulate you at all, but I want you to hear what the Bible says. Just, just hear what the Bible says. So here we go. Let's start in Colossians chapter 2. We're going to look at Colossians and Romans, but then we're going to spend a lot of time in 1 Corinthians. So here we go. Colossians chapter 2 verse 12 says this. Having been buried with him in baptism. So catch the, 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 the verbal language of the, the word burial and baptism. Having been buried with him in baptism. In which you're also raised with him through faith. 
So we know that when Jesus was crucified, he died, and then he was buried, and then he rose from the dead. I mean, that's basic biblical. Anyone who doesn't have to be a Christian, they've heard about the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus. It is a universally understood statement. And he says, you've been buried with him. And baptism is a picture of that. That's why we, in this denomination, submerge people in water. Because it's a picture, you've been buried. Both my parents have died. Both of Carm's parents have died. I'm not trying to be ignorant and crude, but let's make the point. We didn't take them in the backyard and throw some gravel on them and said, you're buried. We dug a hole, put them in the ground, and we cried. And Buried is buried. Submerged, immersed, covered, surrounded. And then buried him in baptism, which you were raised. And those who are buried, if they know Christ, they're not going to stay buried. Jesus will come. He'll call their name, and they will raise. Hallelujah. You put people in the water, we don't leave them there. Hallelujah. I signed up for that, Pastor Dave. We quickly raised them. They were buried. They were raised. Because it says, I'm no longer dead. I'm now alive to God. 13. And you who were dead in your trespasses. See how he's making the spiritual application? You're dead in your sins. You were dead in your sins. And the uncircumcision, an Old Testament reference. In your flesh. Our flesh was still sinful. The old reproductive sinful inheritance had not yet been cut away. God made us alive. He made us alive. Spiritually quickened, made us alive. In Him, with Him, having forgiven our trespasses. That's what gives us spiritual life. He forgave our sin. He took away our trespass, verse 13. 14. He did this by canceling the record of debt that stood against us. With legal documents, He set it aside. Because he nailed it to the cross. That's beautiful theology in verse 14. That's beautiful theology in verse 14. We're not saved by our works. We're saved by this. That he took the record of our debt. He nailed it to the cross. And it's no longer held against me. This is a legal transaction done in heaven itself. He took all the written records. David McMurray did this, David McMurray did this, David McMurray did this. I would imagine no jokes intended. I had a pretty long list of me breaking the Ten Commandments. Every one of them. Multiple, multiple, multiple times. But he took that record and nailed it to the cross. Look at verse 14. He nailed it to the cross. And that's what set it aside. It, it doesn't exist. It's no longer held against me. You can't find it in the courts of heaven. It's covered, washed away by the blood of Christ. No wonder verse 15 says, 
he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame. When Satan says, oh, that Dave McMurray, that Dave McMurray, and Jesus would say, where's the record of that? There is no record of that. He disarmed the rulers and authorities by triumphing, this is beautiful, by triumphing on to verse over them. How did he triumph over them? What's those last two words said out loud? In him. Who's him here? Clearly it's Christ. Clearly it's Christ. That my debt the record of my sin has been nailed to the cross, washed away, and Satan has nothing to say. Not because of I really worked hard and became a good boy. No, it's all because of him. This all happened in him. On Christ, the solid rock, I stand. All other ground is sinking. I, I have no hope in myself. Or on all my religious activity. My hope is in Him. And in Him alone. Baptism is a picture of this. I did die to the old life. I buried that old man. But I'm up alive a new man. In Christ. In Him. This is Colossians 2. Look at Romans 6. What shall we say then? All my sins washed away. Hallelujah. I can do what I want now. Got a clean slate. I can mess it up again and he'll keep erasing it all away. It's a pretty good deal for me. What shall we say then? Would it continue in sin that grace by abound? Absolutely not. By no means. Some translations here would say, God forbid. How can we who have died to sin keep living in it? Therein lies the issue. Now, I will give you a little theological brief explanation, but don't think I'm giving you a back door because I'm not. There is a distinct difference between our spirit and our flesh. At this point, there's a big sigh of relief across the congregation. That is not to say, however, that when your flesh sins, you're not dragging the Spirit of God with you. As you are. So quit thinking that, that I'm this, this miraculous uh, split personality kind of it's only my flesh that's sinning, but my spirit is just just pure and lovely. Well your spirit's not so pure and lovely when you lose your temper and scream and that's the easiest of our expressions of sin. Or when he continue in sin, the grace may abound. Oh, the more I sin, the more grace I get. Wow, does life get any better? I can sit on the one and get more grace. Absolutely not, verse 2. By no means. How can we have died to sin keep living in it? Do you not know that those of us who have been baptized into Christ spiritually were baptized into his death? That's why we do what we do, because it's a picture of death. We were buried, therefore, by him with baptism in order that as Christ was raised from the dead, we too walk in newness of life. Look, I, I'm, I'm not telling you that it's just wicked and demonic to baptize infants. I'm, I'm not saying that. 
But I, I, I don't practice baptizing infants because when I was an infant, I had no knowledge of my sin. I didn't know what I was doing. And, and that's not just infants. That's, I, I didn't know much about sin when I was six. I knew a whole bunch about sin when I was 16. I would imagine you did too. Or 12. Or, you know. Baptism is only a picture of the spiritual thing. Something's happened to me spiritually. I died to that life. I became alive to Christ. Baptism now illustrates that. Oh, he died to the old life. He's alive to a new life. Well, let's illustrate that. What do you do with dead You bury a dead person. That, that's what's happening here. We were buried with Christ by baptism. In order that, same way that Christ was raised from the dead, we too have new life. That's not who I am anymore. Verse 3 and 4, by the way, are this week's memorization verse. verses this week. Two. Verse 3 verse 4. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized in the Christ Jesus were baptized into a picture, an illustration of death? We were buried symbolically with him by baptism in order that just like Christ raised from the dead, we too would walk in newness of life. Baptism is like putting the wedding ring on. I'm married now. Not that there was a long line of women trying to flirt with me. But it says, no, Dave's made a decision and we weren't in it. Baptism has the same kind of effect. Well, he used to be out there, but now he's walking with Christ. Now let's finally get to 1 Corinthians 12 and start here. For just as the, one, for just as the body is one and has many members... And all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. So we're talking about individual members. So look at your body, think about your body, hands, feet, arms, legs, eyes, nose, ears, external, internal. We're made up of multiple appendages or parts. Our bodies are very complex. The body is one and has many members, and all of them are part of the body. So it is with Christ. And one spirit, all baptized into one body, doesn't matter, Jew or Greek, slave or free, all were made to drink. All were made to drink. Colossians 2, you see it on the printed notes, use the word buried. Romans 6, use the word raised. Here, in 1 Corinthians 12, he starts with this word drink. But it didn't even say liquid or wine or we're made to drink of one spirit. He's using illustrations, using symbolic languages. We inject, we drink, he comes in drinking. In one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, one body. There is this universal collection of All kinds of Baptists and Presbyterian and Methodists and this group and that group and that group and that, all kinds of groups. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free. And from whatever you came from, if you've ingested Christ, if you've embraced Christ, you were made to drink. 
of one spirit. There's only one spirit. When you come to faith in Christ, it's that spirit. It's the presence of Christ that comes. There is no perfect denomination. Let's start with the Baptist. I'm a Baptist because I, I, I think the scriptures are pushing me in that direction. But some people, dear close friends of mine, there's something else because, yeah, but Dave, this passage, this passage seems to pull me in this direction. Okay, I'm not going to fight with you about this. We're all made to drink of one spirit. One spirit. We're going to stay in Colossians. Look at verse 13. I'm, I said Corinthians. I'm, I, I said Colossians. I meant Corinthians. Verse 14 says this. The body does not consist of one member only. Many members. Here's the point. If the foot shall say, because I'm a hand, I don't belong to the body, it would not make it any less of the, of the body. Now, we think we have important and unimportant parts. But if we're really that unimportant, then why would God have made it that way? Now, if, if, if I'm in an automobile accident, I lose my left arm, can I function? Yeah, I, I can function with my left arm. Will I be at optimum efficiency? Absolutely not. We can't say in verse 15, I, I, I'm not part of the body. No, no, no. You you may be overlooked, but that doesn't make you any less. Sixteen. If the ear should say, "I'm not an eye, so therefore I don't belong to the body," I wouldn't make it any less part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, think about it. If if I weren't just many parts, but I had just one big eye, that was it. Where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where where would be the sense of smell? Verse 18, but as it is, I love this line, God has arranged. God has arranged. I don't know what word you have in your translation. God has arranged the members of the body, each one, as he chose. He made me a foot and you a hand and you an ear and you an eye. And on it goes and on it goes. The only thing that makes us common is that we've died to the old life. And we've become alive in Christ. Our spirits have been quickened, made alive. Oh my goodness. There's more to life than just that world. Oh my goodness. There's eternity. Oh my goodness. And coming alive to this world. And, and, and now he puts us in a body. This whole language here in Corinthians is talking about the body of Christ, or the church being a body with many members. So as much as we're coming into Christ, we're, while the word church hasn't been used, you, at some point it becomes, wait a second, Christ is just a picture of this, this, this collection of redeemed persons, of believing people. You'll see more of it. Look at verse 19, the next passage. If all were a single member, like the whole body was just an eye, or pick your part, whatever it would be, but where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. It's, it's the old joke. You go to heaven, and you're getting your tour as if there's going to be tours. And St. Peter says, in this door is this group. 
and this door is this group, and this door is this group, and, and we get to the next door, and he says, shh, 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 shh. He gets past that door, and someone says, how come we had to be quiet? He said, well, that's the Baptist. They think they're the only ones. It's one body. One. And so the eye can say to the hand, or this denomination can say to that, I have no need of you. Or to the head, to the feet. I, I, you're meaningless. You don't exist. We disregard you. You don't, you don't count. I'm not suggesting that all denominations are theologically, biblically in line, because clearly they are not. But this is his body, not mine. And it's not my business to make sure you know who is. That's, that's God's business. Our business is to study the scriptures and what's the Bible saying to us. One can say to the other, you're nothing. I have no need of you. Now, I'm not saying that all religious people are in Christ's body. But those who are in the body, we, were, we baptize this way. Well, they baptize that way. Okay. I can tell you why I do it this way. I want you to catch the sense of, of interdependence, coexistence. I do not appreciate the bumper sticker you see on the back of a bumper or on a, on a car. It says coexist, and, and the words C-O-E-X-I-S-T are spelled out with this group's symbol and this group's symbol and this group's symbol. And there's some really... Uh, satanic symbols in that list. That's why I'm rejecting that use of the word. But in the body of Christ, in the body of Christ, absolutely we coexist. Verse 22, next page, still in Corinthians 12. On the contrary, we're not competitive, we're condemning of one another. The parts of the body that seem to be weaker are in fact indispensable. Let me get to it. On those parts of the body that we think less honorable, less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. And our, I love how this translation uses this word, our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty. I'm not trying to be crude and I'm not trying to shock you here, but I love this translation and because back to the original language, you do a little bit of homework, it's not that hard. He's talking about, well, what are called here the unpresentable parts that we always keep covered with clothing. We treat them with greater modesty. But they have, go back in verse 23, they have greater honor because of their function and their value. Think about your unpresentable parts that you don't show to the world. At least if you have any kind of decency at all. You treat them with greater modesty because those parts have pretty significant function. Pretty significant function. But the more presentable parts, I was saying they're less important, but they're not, they don't do the same things, they don't accomplish the same purposes. And God has so composed the body giving greater honor to the part that doesn't get a lot of 
camera time until we got to our God help us. You see what's being said here? So think about the body, how the body works, and your body and how it works. Our heart very important, and our lungs are very important. They're internal because they're covered by ribs. In case you take a hit, they have a better chance of surviving. God made it that way. And there's other parts of the body that aren't internal. They are external, but they need to be kept covered. So whether it's internal, covered with flesh, or external, covered with clothing, we give greater honor to the parts that aren't often seen. They're great value to us, whether that's internal or externally and, and yet covered, they give great value to us. And there's people in every congregation that by their personality and even by the jobs that they choose to do, they don't get a whole lot of press or or, or, or camera time or a lot of, oh, this one's doing this. Pastor Dave, he, he stands up there and he does whatever he does. And, it's the parts that you don't see, but boy, are they accomplishing some significant work. We should give them, in fact, greater honor than the parts that get seen a lot. We should give those parts way more recognition, giving greater honor in the body to the parts that don't get any face time, hardly at all. Verse 23 and 24. Yeah, 23 and 24. So, no, yeah, here it is. Uh, yeah, there be no division. That's it. No competition. I'm sorry, 25. No competition. No division. That the members have the same care. One. That's what I wanted to get to. That the members have the same care. That there's no big players and eh, peripheral guys. No. You know why? Because it took just the same amount of, of the mercy and the grace and the blood of Jesus to forgive this person as it did this person. That the, me, no division. No division. That the members have the same care. One member suffers, we suffer together because you're part of the body. Did you ever stub your toe? And then with your face, she went, Ugh! Why, why did you have this facial expression, this moan from your mouth? It's your toe. Because we're connected. You see it? We're, we're connected. One member is honored. Then we're all honored. You're the body of Christ individually, members of it, but you're one body. We're one body. I have many members, but this is one body. Many members, one body. That makes us all essential. You matter in the body of Christ. You matter to this congregation. You matter. You matter. Mark, I'm, I'm, I'm really uh, 
I'm, I got this. I said to some, I gave Mark some extra verses this morning. Now let's go ahead and try it. Let's see if we can do this. And I want to I cram in a couple of references for you that's not in your printed notes. First Corinthians 11. We'll pick this up next week. I, I promise you we'll pick this up next week, but you need to catch it here because we're talking about the body. He's talking about the Lord's Supper. We're going to do the Lord's Supper next week, or communion, as most people call it. And the following instructions, I do not commend you, but when you come together, it is not for the better or for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part. This is, this is 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 17. This is the Apostle Paul writing to the congregation in the town of Corinth. This is a local church. Like we here are a local church. We are the Baptist church in Blackwood. And he's writing to this congregation in Corinth. And he says what he says. He says in verse 18, there are divisions and I tend to believe it because, here's verse 18. Uh, that's, that's verse 18. First Corinthians. Local church. Look at Second Corinthians. I'm, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, Mark, I'm so confused. It's chapter 12. First Corinthians 12 which is still the same letter, chapter 11, he's talking about a local congregation. Here's chapter 12, verse 28. God is appointed in the church, apostles, prophets, teachers, miracles, healing, helping administrations, various kinds of languages. Here's my question. I just showed you two verses out of the previous chapter, 1 Corinthians 11. And he said there, you're many parts, one body. There's that. Very next chapter, 1 Corinthians 12, he says, God is born in the church, apostles, prophets, teachers, miracles, healing, helping, administration, languages. He says, 29, all apostles, all prophets. Now, here's the question. Do you, is he still talking about the church in Corinth? I mean, it's a letter to the church at Corinth. And he talks about them being one body. But here how, near how he says, but God has put in the church, look at all these apostles and prophets. So is it only the church at Corinth that has apostles and prophets and teachers? Or is what he's saying now in chapter 12, does it apply to all churches everywhere? I suppose you could back yourself into a corner and say, oh, no, no, because that this was written to the church at Corinth that only the church at Corinth has Apostles and prophets and teachers and miracles and healing and administration and languages. He has, without any kind of, other than contextual, contextual illustration, he's moved from saying specifically what needs to happen in this local congregation, moving from the model, the example, the illustration of the broader body of Christ, which still is one. But we don't see that until we're gathered together with him in heaven as one. Every church has apostles and prophets and teachers and miracles and healing, helping administration and, and, and languages. But not every person is the apostle or the prophet or the teacher. It, we don't have the same gifts. 31, last verse here. Earnestly desire the greater gifts, the gifts of God. And I will show you still, and it gets the great thing of loving one another, chapter 13, 
I'll show you the more excellent way. And the excellent way is just love one another. Just love one another. Quit, oh, this is my gift. My gift's way more important than your gift. Shut up. In Jesus' name, shut up. Love one another. Play your role. Be the best little toe you can be. Be the best left ear you know how to be. We need one another. We're one body. And the whole body gets buried in Christ. And the whole body raises from the dead with Christ. And the whole body walks in newness of life with Christ. That was quick. We made it, Mark. First Peter 3, let's finish up. First Peter 3. Christ has suffered once for sins. One time. And this suffering is the righteous for the unrighteous. The righteous for the unrighteous. I believe I'm going to heaven when I die. I'm absolutely certain I'm going to heaven when I die. It has nothing to do with me being a pastor. It has nothing to do with me being a Christian. Primarily. It has to do with Christ making me Christian. The righteous suffered for the unrighteous that he might bring us to God. If you think you've earned your way, you don't understand the scriptures at all. If, if you think you're achieving some kind of merit by all that you do, then what is this verse? And scores, scores of verses like them saying, Christ suffered for our sins. He's the righteous one taking our sin and dying our eternal death, the righteous for the unrighteous. He is the one that's bringing us to God. He was put to death in the flesh. And he was made alive in the spirit. This is where it gets really peculiar here. This is, a, this is a, intentionally enough just a little bit of time so I can duck this passage. That's really a bad joke. In which he went in the spirit. In which, the word which is spirit. He's put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. And in the spirit, he went and came to the spirits in prison. Oh, it is getting weird. In the spirit, Jesus went somewhere, which would be called like a prison, and he's preaching to spirits? In which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison? Woo! What is going on here? And here's why. Here's why, verse 20. Because they formerly did not obey. It's even more weird now. Because they formerly did not obey. When God's patience waited in the days of Noah. He's going way back to the times of Noah. While the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through water. Ooh. I could have ducked this. I don't ever want to duck the hard passages because I want us to learn to deal with them. There's one of two things being said here. I'll give you my position and, and ask you why. There's one of two things being said here. Number one, I will take the less probable to me. Some would say in verse 19 into verse 20, that they were imprisoned by their sin. And I agree with that language. 
We were slaves to sin. Paul uses that language all through his writing. We were slaves to sin, and then Jesus comes, pays for our sin, and sets us free. And because that language is, that kind of language is used, and Paul uses it all the time, it would make a whole lot of sense. But Peter is saying the same thing here. And he's just taking it as far back as the days of Noah, that Jesus, in the person of Noah, that Noah preached in the spirit of Jesus, and that's believable. That's not like crazy. I'm not sure that's the most accurate translation or, or, or interpretation, but that's, that's plausible that Noah preached in the spirit of Christ. And, and that's what's happening in, in, in verse 19 and 20. But I'm uncomfortable with that because, no, it, it, that explanation would, it would only make Jesus, okay, Noah was preaching in the spirit of, of, of Jesus. No, verse 18 says, he's talking about Jesus. Christ suffered. He died. He rose from the dead. He was made alive in the spirit. And in the spirit, in the verse 19, he went and preached to. I think it's Jesus who's preaching here, not Noah, in the spirit of Christ. I think it's Jesus. Which backs me into another corner. All right, Dave, I ain't going to get out of that. Number one, I don't think he goes to hell and says, See there, you see there. I think you got right. This isn't vengeful. This isn't, ha ha, just burn there, suckers. Should have trusted in me. Oh, my goodness. I don't believe that's happening at all. The broader context, both the large passage we left in 1 Corinthians 12 and this passage in Peter, he's talking about vindication. Not I told you so, but publicly. Jesus was ridiculed. The Pharisees had convinced not the majority of the public, but they had convinced the Roman government and at least some leaders in the religious Pharisee, Sadducee denominations of, of, of uh, Hebrew worship. They had convinced them that Jesus was radical. He was a, a, a false prophet. He had nothing to do with, with Jehovah God. And we better put him to death because he is a threat to truth. So they killed him. Not knowing that, he, that in, in killing them, they were in fact doing all that God had intended to occur. And resurrection and appearance to these witnesses is the ultimate vindication. You thought you're getting rid of him. All you did was release him because if he's in the flesh, he can only do so much so long. This town, this town, this town. But now when he's dead and his spirit comes on the day of Pentecost to every believer, to every believer, now there's not Jesus and his 12. Oh my goodness. 3,000 were converted on the day of Pentecost. And then the, the next day, these men. And, and, and every day, people are coming to Jesus around the globe. Here we are in the 21st century. They did not obey, and God's patience was waiting in the days of Noah. And a few, that is, were saved through water, were brought safely through water. 
I'm going to give you back to Jesus' preaching in just a moment. Here's 21. Baptism, which corresponds to the flood in Noah's day. There was death by water. Baptism makes us think, Peter says, of Noah. But now, rather than killing us, water, baptism, now saves us. Wait, Pastor Dave, whoa, hold, stop, stop, the train, what? You spent, well, uh, uh, 56 minutes talking about salvation by grace and the blood of Christ and the crucifixion, and now you're saying baptism saves us? Oh, I'm so glad you asked. Baptism now saves us. Watch the next phrase. Not, not as the removal of filth or dirt from the body. Baptism does not save us as removal of dirt from the body. Baptism saves us not as removal of dirt from the body. Next slide. But as an appeal to God for a good conscience. As an expression of, oh my goodness, I can be clean. The filth of my soul can be washed away. The sins of my life can be erased, at least to the mind of God, that he never holds them against me again. It is an appeal to God for a good conscience through, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We're back to the death to bear on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We started there on baptism. We end there on baptism. And he says, Peter says, baptism saves us, but not the way you think. There's nothing magical about water. I don't care where the water came from or what you do to it. There is something miraculous about the blood of Jesus. There is something profoundly miraculous about our faith in the blood of Jesus. That's what saves us. That's what gives me a clear conscience before God. That's why baptism is so important. It's putting on for spiritual wedding night. I belong to Jesus. And I ain't working with no other girl. I belong to Jesus. And I have no other gods before him. He's my savior. He's my redeemer. He's my life. I'm married to Jesus. I ain't going nowhere else. This is the value. This is the benefit of baptism. It doesn't save us literally. In the same way that this wedding ring doesn't make me married. But because I am married, I hate it when I'm not able to wear it. My, got, got, my finger got so big and couldn't get it off. We had to get it. I love wearing my wedding ring. And I love being baptized. Not because, oh, that's, that's, that's like the crucifixion. No, it's not like the crucifixion. It is a reminder, the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Died to my old life. I was submerged in water. I came up out of the water a new creature. Not because those waters washed my sins away. The blood of Christ washed my sins away. But I can't go find the blood of Christ and cover myself in it. So we get an emblematic picture. We get a symbol. Baptism does save us. We just read it. But not to putting away the filth of your flesh or your spirit. It is the answer of a clear conscience before God. This is the beauty of baptism. Last week, you need to be born again. This week, you need to get baptized. This is what Christians do. 
We recognize that we were dead. He makes us alive. How, how do I illustrate that? By living a different life. But how do, how do, I, how do I tell my friends that, hey, something happened to me. I, I came to faith in Christ. Well, have them come and watch you get baptized. You say, what age puts you in all that? Why don't you just a little sprinkle something? Well, you could, but I didn't just get a little couple drops. I got doused with the grace of God. I have been emerged, submerged into this whole new life. I'm his, and he is mine. And I'm alive in Christ. I came back from the dead. You can get a shower and not drown. But when you get submerged and stay there a little bit, you might drown. And then you have to be raised from the dead. That's why we submerge people. That's why we do it this way. That's just why we do it this way. I'm giving you biblical explanation. We're born of the Spirit. That means I'm no longer dead in my sin. I want to get rid of that old man. Let's bury him. And have a new life. And baptism helps us illustrate that. That's all it is. Well, that's all it is. It's no big deal. Well... You probably took some pictures when you got married. Now, if you didn't take any pictures at all, or you took a bunch of pictures, they all get burned up. You're still married, even though the pictures are gone. But I bet you wish you had a bunch of pictures of your wedding. You had a bunch of kids. And you took all kinds of pictures of those kids. You can barely, your phone's almost dead because it's loaded with pictures. You lose your phone. All the house burned down, you lose all your pictures. But your kids are still alive. I bet you wish it might be one, maybe not. But I bet you wish none of your kids, you, you get the point? Symbols are, yeah, they're just symbols. But some of them are really important to us. And because Jesus did it by example, he didn't have his sins to be washed away. He didn't have his sins to die too. Because Jesus got baptized. Probably a pretty important thing. It's a way we start our new life. I'm dead to that old life. I'm alive in Christ. I used to be part of the world. I was part of that body. But Jesus take me out of that body. He's put me in this body. And I want everyone to know, I like this new body I'm a part of. I like being in this circle. We talk about Jesus here. Last week, I have been saved. This week, we're getting baptized next week. How do we remember the Lord Jesus? Lord's Supper. Stand with me. Let's sing.